Well, we've been working through, well, we've started this new series, Seven Deadly Sins, and uh, we've mentioned right at the very beginning that the idea of sin is uh, something which has become a little bit of a, uh, a bit of a byword for, uh, for a joke, really. The idea of sin is not something which uh, we really take seriously in our current culture, and yet at the same time, the Bible makes uh, a massive deal of this. In fact, running through the thread line of the Bible is the issue of sin in this world. Now, historically, uh, there has been, um, I guess, different ways of looking at sin, and the seven deadly sins is something which grew up historically, and we're not making a big thing of it, but I'm using it because it's a helpful hook to hang a whole load of issues on, and so we work through this. We're coming to something which is called uh, sloth, which is not a mammal that hangs in a tree and moves very slowly, uh, although I guess it was named after the idea of that kind of sluggish, sluggardly behaviour. Now, the interesting thing about this is it, um, it, it's changed in, the, in, in different um, renditions of these groups of sins. There's sloth or duplicity. And it, there's one that says sloth, another group of words that seems to have... Uh, uh, being embraced by another group of people has duplicity, that idea, idea of double standards. So I was thinking, why, why is this? I think as we work through this, we're going to see why there is almost an interchangeability about those two. We live in an age, don't we, which is filled, totally driven by the idea of chilling and leisure and just kind of rolling back and letting it all flow. That's the kind of culture that we live in. Uh, it's captured brilliantly by, um, in fact, I'm going to mention it a few times because it fits so perfectly, Bruno Mars, uh, one of his latest songs, The Lazy Song, where he basically says, today I don't feel like doing anything. I just want to lay in my bed. Don't feel like picking up my phone, so leave a message at the tone, because today I'm not doing anything. That is kind of an anthem for today, isn't it? That, that in, in people's minds, that is a great day. And you're kind of maybe thinking, that sounds like a good day. Yeah, that sounds like a great day to just chill out and turn the phone off and stay in bed all day. Now, immediately we might say, does that mean that the Bible is saying the one thing that you mustn't do is just kind of relax and chill? Well, interestingly, one of the things that we see Jesus doing is Jesus takes a bit of time out. He recognizes that there is a point in our lives and as human beings where we absolutely need rest and relaxation. But the problem that we have as human beings is we take every single good thing that God has given to us and we twist it and we pervert it and we make it an ultimate thing uh, and we are then driven by something which is good uh, and we, we make too big a thing of it. We do that all the time. You know, money is a good thing. Uh, food is a good thing. Uh, leisure time is a good thing. But we, when we can explode it and we make everything is driven by that, we get out of proportion, we blow it, which is what we're going to see this afternoon, and we end up in a mess. We're going to have a look this afternoon at this little story of Esau, because I think he helps us to understand where this issue of sloth actually fits, this issue of that kind of sluggish, 
uh, attitude to life and the connection with this uh, duplicity, this double answer, this double standard to say one thing, I don't keep my promises. Let's have a look at this story. It's from Genesis chapter 25. And uh, it covers uh, the initial uh, introduction of these two key biblical characters, uh, Jacob and Esau, uh, born to Isaac and Rebekah. And, and they are very different characters. And um, we, we have them introduced at this point, and we find that they are uh, key in the, in the flow of God's dealing with this world. In fact, we have here, although we don't see it, one of those names which gets changed in a few years. Jacob becomes Israel, and Israel, as you probably know, is one of the great names uh, of the Bible, and the Israelites, the Jews, are named after, after this man. So we're talking about the introduction of some key figures in the Bible here. But what we see is that uh, Rebecca, his wife, uh, the wife of Isaac, uh, has... Is, not had a child and God grants their prayer and she conceives and we see here that uh, the Lord said to Rebecca in verse uh, verse 23 two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided one shall be stronger than the other the older shall serve the younger and then we have this little picture of uh, the birth of these two uh, two babies who become uh, key men in the, in the history of the Bible and the story that the Bible communicates to us. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out uh, red, all his body like a hairy cloak. He was a hairy little kid with little red hair. That's the kind of picture that we have. Now, that red thing is really important. We're going to see that following through in a, in a few minutes. And afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. He's kind of, I'm on the way out. Um, I'm following you, boy. I'm going to be attached to you. And you're not going to, I'm going to be a problem in your heel uh, for the rest of life. Uh, and so we see that um, these two are kind of connected. There's, there's almost this battle going on, even at childbirth. Uh, between these two little ones. And yet at the same time, even though we see them born at the same time, they're twins, they are remarkably different as kids. And as they grow up, they become different characters. One is um, a, a kind of a homeboy. He, he likes staying at home and he likes cooking and spending time in the tent and around the family area. The, the other one is a kind of, he's, a, he's, a, he's an out there, adventurous kind of guy. He's, he's, he's out hunting and uh, he's the one who puts himself in all sorts of situations. He's a kind of man's man. And uh, I don't want to decry, guys, if you enjoy cooking. I'm not saying you're not a man's man. Not at all. But uh, one enjoys cooking and the other one enjoys going out and kind of catching it. You know, that's the kind of picture that we've got. Uh, and there we've got this separation of the two kind of guys that we have in this story. Now, we come to verse 27 because we have now a, a little cameo of the life. Once, it says, they're now young men. Now young men. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field uh, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Red. Edom means red. So we've got, uh, he's born. With, with red hair all over his body. He comes in and he asks for red stew. 
presumably made with red meat, uh, and he gets called Red. So now we've got this guy called Red, who's perhaps the original redneck, who comes in saying, I'm knackered, give me some stew. And he comes in and he kind of flops back and look at the way it's put. Let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Man, I just want to come in. I want some of that stew. I want to chill. I want to relax. And then unfolds what seems to be the moment for Jacob to strike. Look at the way he responds. There's not a great deal of brotherly love here, is there? He says, sell me your birthright now. Sell me your birthright now. That's a massive thing. What is a birthright? We don't have it anywhere near the same in our culture, but in in ancient times and in many other cultures still today, uh, the idea of the eldest son, the firstborn son, uh, taking on, if you like, the name of the family, Uh, the inheritance of the family, and not only the privileges of the family, but the responsibilities of the family. That's what's tied up in a birthright. We kind of think, don't we, that it's all about privilege. When we read it, if if you've been reading the Bible on regular occasions, you've come to this story, we often think birthright in terms of privilege. And it's right, there is a privilege. But there is also a great deal of responsibility He becomes the bearer of the name into the future. He becomes the one who carries the name forward. He becomes, if you like, the figurehead that maintains this recognition of this family. He bears a responsibility. And Jacob has had it in his mind as the second born of the two sons. And also the one, we read a little bit earlier, that dad loved Esau because he went out and hunted game. Mum loved Rebecca. What a messed up family. What a crisis is going on here. Isn't it sad? But isn't it great that the Bible deals with real life? (laughs) This is real life, isn't it? There's this breakdown in relationship that, that there's... There's partiality that's going on. Dad loves one, mum loves the other. Why does mum love the other? Because she's had a promise. She's had a promise that at some point, Jacob is going to be the one who will be served by Esau. The one who is second is going to become first. Uh, And they've been, one would guess, talking about it. And now he sees, here's the moment. Here's the moment to make right what was promised by God. I'm going to take into my own hands what God has promised. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to make this happen. I'm not going to trust God and to make it happen. And the way to do it is while my brother has come in, here's the weak point. Here's the weak point for my brother. I'm going to come in and I'm going to say right now, sell me your birth right now. How does Jacob uh, Esau respond? I mean, talk about overstatement. I'm about to die. He's actually used language, which we don't quite fully see, but he's used language asking for it in the first place, which makes it really clear that he's not about to die. He might be really hungry. He might be a bit tired, for sure. But he, he said, I'm about to die. 
What use is a birthright to me now? Just, yeah, have it. Just give me some stew. Just give me some food. You can have the birthright. I just want food. Just give me some of that stew. Because after all, I've just come in from, you know, I've been out hunting. And it's hot out there. And I've been walking miles. I've been out all day. I need some food. I'm tired. Give me it. Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. What a, what a picture that the Bible is communicating to us there. Here's these two brothers. And there is this dynamic going on at this point in time where one is trying to make sure that he delivers what God has promised as opposed to being faithfully trusting that God will deliver it. And the other is just completely disregarding. And we see this picture that goes on where this bowl of lentil stew gets passed from one to the other and in reverse goes a birthright. One says, takes a bowl of stew. The other takes the privilege and the responsibility of the firstborn. It's as though it's saying, the cost, the value, the value of being firstborn is worth a bowl of stew. In fact, the Bible says that, doesn't it? Because it goes on to say, thus Esau despised his birthright. That's how much he valued it. That's how much he thought of it. And I think that that statement just captures this whole issue. He's come in. What is his attitude at that point in time? How do we define sloth out of this? And what connects that event thousands of years ago to today? Why is it relevant for us today? Because it says, I think, that Esau is driven not by a sense of responsibility, not by a sense of promise, not by a sense of his commitments. He is driven by his feelings. He's driven by his feelings. And at this point in time, he says, I feel hungry. I don't care about promises. I don't care about responsibilities. I just want to lie in my bed. I don't want to do anything. I want to switch off my mobile. I want to take the calls to voicemail. I just want to chill with a bowl of soup. I want to take it easy. Because at heart, I am driven by how I feel right now. I am not driven by who I am. I am not driven by my responsibilities. I am not driven by the demands that are made of me. Now that connects it to this kind of duplicitous, double standard, uh, not keeping commitments. I think as I read this, Esau's the kind of guy from what we see here, the kind of guy who you probably make some plans but if something better came up, he'd probably go and do that. He's the kind of guy that, if he had a responsibility, 
that he'd made a commitment to, it's quite likely to say, Do you know what, I just feel tired today. I just want to go out, relax, sit in the sun. The fact that I've made that commitment, I don't feel it. I'm not going to commit, I'm not going to deliver that. I'll just go and chill instead. He is defined by what he feels as opposed to what he is and the commitments that he has made. Now listen, folks. I don't think there is any kind of issue that more closely matches what we face today. I'm going to say it heads up. I'm going to say it straight because I know that I am as responsible in the face of this demand as anybody else. I know what my heart is like. I know that I am the kind of person that could quite easily find all sorts of reasons why my feelings don't want to fulfill my responsibilities. I'm the kind of person who will do all sorts of things that I enjoy rather than the things that I've committed to. And we are like that, aren't we? We are like that. We are the kind of people who are slothful. Sloth is not the idea of chilling. There is a place for that. The Bible makes it clear there is a place for rest. It was God who said don't work seven days a week, work six. It was God who said that. And it's us that say, I want to work one and chill for six. It's God, us that says, I want to turn around what God says and I don't want to take up my responsibilities. I want to live by how I feel. What does it do? What does it do when we live like that? What does it do? Well, what does it do for this family? This decision at this point in time by somebody who is driven by how he feels rather than living up to his responsibilities shatters a family relationship. There is tension, there is conflict from here on in. Now, you might be thinking, oh, chill a bit, will you, Paul? This is not that bad. It is. It really is. We live in a, in, in a society, in a culture, where we do not commit to each other, where we do not fulfill our responsibilities, where we do not stand up and say, I've said I will do that, I will deliver against that. We are measured by how we feel, not by what we do. What a tragedy. What does that do? It turns us inside out. It turns us from looking outwards for the sake of others. It turns us inwards to say everything that I do is going to be based on my feelings. Every decision that I make is for me. Do you see how, how that fights against time and time again in the New Testament where we are called as believers in Jesus Christ to what? We are called to good works again and again and again. We are called to say you are changed, therefore live differently. That means don't live any anymore according to your feelings. Live according to the commitments that you've made. Live according to the promises that you've made. Stand up and be who you are. Wow. 
just so that we don't um, think that this is you know, stretching that particular passage. One of the great books in the Bible is Proverbs. And in chapter 6, we have this little picture. Proverbs is a whole series of pictures that, that kind of wisdom, biblical wisdom saying, just think about this. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 6, we read this. Go to the ant, O sluggard. O slothful one. O lazy dog. However you want to put it. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? Have you ever, have you ever been outside? Did you do this as a kid? You find an ant's nest and um, dig into the soil a little bit, scrape it away and just expose the eggs and they all go crazy. And there's no, there's no seeming authority and structure. It's just like, Everybody knows what their responsibility is. Everybody knows what part they play in it. And, and they all jump on the case. And they say, I'm just going to do it. I, I'm going to go and I'm going to grab that egg and I'm going to take it deeper into the nest. And, and it's like everybody's doing their stuff. They all take the responsibility to, to go and to feed and to grab the food during the day and bring it in. For, you know, this picture here, they... they, they they get the food while it's available and they store it up for the winter and all of those pictures. What is it saying? And what does inward-looking self-centeredness do? What does it do in this context? It destroys community. It destroys mutual commitment. It destroys relationship. It destroys delivering for each other. It is the opposite to being committed to each other. Slothfulness says it's all about me. As opposed to we are here together and we are committed to each other. Now let me take you now why I, I think in biblical terms this is just a giant issue. Because right at the very beginning of time God said I'm going to make you to be people for community. And God, God's created people despised his word and said no we're going to, it's all about us and we went self-centered and from there on we do everything driven for us what is it to be a Christian what is it one is it's to be saved by grace by faith in Jesus Christ, to look forward to eternity with him, to a, a new creation which will be resolved. That is, the, that is the objective of salvation. Salvation is not an end in itself. It's to take us to a place where we will be the people of God, worshipping him in his perfect well, world for all of eternity. That's where it's taking us. But in the meantime, what is it about? It's about little by little, bit by bit, reversing as best we can the damage that has been done by sin. 
And one of the damaging factors that has been done by sin is the fact that we become self-centered and we don't think of others. And the Christian church is about a reversal of that. It's about a commitment to each other. It's about becoming people who are defined not by how we feel, but by the fact that we are the kind of people who keep our promises. We say, I'm going to do it. And we become the kind of people where people can look on and say, do you know what? He did it. She did it. They said they were going to do it and they turned around and they delivered it. Why is that important? Because it is reversing the damage that has been done by sin. It's representing how life ought to be. It is redeeming the world that we live in. It's exemplifying a little foretaste of what it is to be for all of eternity. Do you know how, how, how powerful that is? Evangelistically, for people to see a whole group who are committed and live according to their promises. I, th- I don't think there's many things that are more starkly different in, the, in our generation than being a group of people who, who commit to their promises and then keep them. Now, one of the things that I, you might say is, I, I'm going to avoid failing. By never, never making promises. If I don't make any promises, I can't fail, can I? I can't blow it. You know what? You can't live like that. Esau had it by the fact that he was born into a family as the firstborn. He didn't make a promise. He carried that responsibility because of who he was. You and I carry responsibilities just because of who we are. We carry kind of promises with us, expectations with us because of who we are, many different ones. We certainly carry expectations. If we believe and trust in Jesus and we say, he is my saviour, we carry those expectations. Now the question is, are we going to live according to that? Because the alternative is the corrupting power of me. If I am driven by me, I am a danger to everybody around And I am a danger to myself. One of the lines in um, Bruno Mars' song says this. Because in my castle, they basically say, I'm going to just shut the door, switch off the mobile, lay in bed. Because in my castle, I'm the freaking man. How isolating does me being at the centre make me? How isolating. When we take it to its extreme, it is corrupting to relationships. It is corrupting to your relationships with each other. It is corrupting to my relationships with you. It is corrupting to my existence in this world when I make me the centre. And we, as those who trust and believe in Jesus, are the ones who will say, I'm going to reverse this. And you might say, do you know what? I've been trying this for a long time. And I keep failing. 
I know. I would say, though, isn't the starting point actually saying I am going to be the kind of person who is going to live to my promises, not to my feelings? There's a starting point, isn't it? It's a starting point which is rooted not in us. What is a Christian? It's somebody who has come to faith in Jesus, and that Jesus is who? It's the God of the Bible, the living God, who says this. I, the Lord, do not change. I do not change. You know, you're the kind of people, he says to us, you're the kind of people that you're changing all the time. You make promises that you don't deliver on, but I don't change. I I do not change. That verse continues in Malachi by saying this, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God has made a promise to the children of Jacob, and they have deserted him, they have broken their promises, but God's promise has remained to them because he doesn't change. He doesn't fail on his promises. He always delivers. He never lets us down. How is that most seen? We see it, don't we, in the promise that finally we see exhibited on a cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That is the promise of God. It's a promise that begins in Genesis chapter 3 when this mess first started. It's a promise that continues right the way through the the Old Testament. As the prophets continually build up, there is a promised saviour. He's going to come. And then finally that saviour comes because God delivers in his promises. He comes in and he does deliver. He's the kind of God who we who exhibits what we would want to be. You know, deep down, do you want to be the kind of person who people don't know where you are? Do you want to be the kind of person who, you know, are they going to do it? Are they going to deliver? Can I trust them? Well, Jesus is the one who we can absolutely trust. Because he came into this world delivering the promise of God. And then there's a point at which he says, John says he turns his face to Jerusalem. He now becomes determined to head to the cross. That is Jesus fulfilling his promise. He said he's going to do it. And no matter what opposition, even when his own disciples say, don't go there. No, you can't die. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because you don't know what know what you want. You're, you're wanting the things of man. I want the things of God, my Father. And Jesus goes to the cross. The whole of the Bible is about God fulfilling his promise in Jesus. And when we become a Christian, we receive that nature With the demand that we then live that nature. We become that. Do you know what? 
when God looks at me as a believer in Jesus Christ, he sees me as though I never fail in a promise. He sees me as though I always keep my commitments. He sees me as somebody who is measured by promises, not by feelings. Not because I am that, but because Jesus is. And then he says to me, and he says to you, now because you are that, go and live that. The charge of this Are we sloths? Are we duplicitous people who can't be trusted to keep our promises? Or are we going to be those who live what Jesus has called us to be? To display him in this world. Because we are that. That's the great news. He sees us as that. We are clothed in righteousness. I have become that person in Christ. And then Peter says, be holy because I am holy. You are clothed in righteousness. Now go and live it. Guys, you're going to be the kind of guys who are going to live it up And say, I am going to be somebody who's going to make commitments. I'm going to be marked by somebody to the best of my ability. Accepting that I will fail at times. But I'm going to be somebody committed to living against my promises. Not against my feelings. This has got to shape the whole of life. Because we are called to it. Girls. Are you going to be that? This display Jesus in that way to a world that is desperately clamoring for people to keep their promises. We are that. So let's live it.